So there are two primary objectives that um, Paul addresses for the faith of the church in Philippi in this section of his letter. The first is their need to have courage in the face of opposition. And the second is their need to be more united as one community. The opposition that they seem to be facing, Paul had faced himself. He knows it firsthand. Um, Most likely the opponents were neighbors of theirs as well as the city magistrates, those in authority. We remember from Paul's account in Acts, or the account of Paul's visit to Philippi in Acts written by Luke, that um, after he had been there for a while, there was lots of disruption. There was a healing of a slave girl who who told fortunes, and when she was healed of a demon, she didn't tell fortunes anymore, and the people who used her for that purpose uh, saw a loss in their income, and they weren't happy about that. And so Paul is arrested and put in prison, and then then God frees him from prison. The, the, the prison doors are, there's an earthquake, the doors are, are left open, The prison guard thinks that his prisoners have escaped, and so he's thinking he better take his own life because he's going to to be killed anyway. And then Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. We haven't left. He comes to faith along with his whole household. And so that is the nature of Paul's ministry here. So now he's out of prison, but then the hostility continues. And so the Philippians themselves beg, they insist that Paul leave the city for his sake, for his safety. So Paul knows what this community is like, and they're still there. They've been left behind, and now some of that hostility is being directed toward them as a Christian community. And so Paul says to them, don't let these people intimidate you. And then he says this amazing phrase, which we as Americans don't particularly like hearing, It's been granted you the privilege to suffer for Christ. Well, I'm not sure I'd call it a privilege, but but people who do suffer for the cause of Christ speak that way. The first time I ever visited China, I was stunned by how much they spoke of suffering as a badge of honor, as a way of, of being united with Christ and of living out the reality of the gospel. And this is kind of what Paul's implying, that the very nature of the gospel includes this expectation of suffering for those who follow Jesus. Nevertheless, he doesn't want them to live double lives. He doesn't want them to keep their their commitment and their faith private and then live some different life when they're out in public with everyone else. He thinks it's essential that their faith is lived out in the open, that it's, that it's evident for all. The very nature of the gospel depends upon it being visible and demonstrative in its practice. It's not a quiet belief that we hold, but it's the transformation of our lives that we're living out before others. The whole business of being a Christian is is to be um, one who believes that, that Jesus is the one true Lord of this world 
And we know that reality. We know it's true. And yet the rest of the world doesn't accept it. So inevitably, what it means to be Christian is that we're going to be out of step with most people in this world. I don't know about you, but that's an uncomfortable place to be. I like to be liked. I like to be accepted. I like to feel like I fit in. But Paul's saying, don't expect that. Instead, don't be surprised if you experience misunderstanding. If that people are hostile to you just because of what you represent and stand for. Or that you actually even suffer persecution. Listen to how Eugene Peterson translates this. I think he makes it a little bit more uh, clear for us, particularly in the culture in which we live. He says, live in such a way that you are a credit to the message of the gospel. I wouldn't mind that on my tombstone. He was a credit to the message of Christ. Uh, Not that I'm expecting that to happen soon, but let me continue. Our behavior and lifestyle must match the gospel we proclaim. We must be known for being honest, reliable, good neighbors, even when people are accusing or attacking us. That's quite a, that's quite a, a uh, challenge, quite a call. And yet Paul says, have courage in the face of this. Stand together, serving side by side with one another. This reminds me of how theologian and Quaker chaplain in the mid-1900s, Elton Trueblood, he held faculty positions at some, some, some known colleges, Haverford College, Harvard, Stanford University, Earlham, Earlham College, just to name a few. Here's how he defined evangelism. Rather than see it as a means of converting someone else from their way of thinking and their beliefs, to your own, he said instead to to see evangelism as extending the sphere of Christ's influence. If Christ rules and reigns in this world, then you bring evidence to that wherever you are. You point to the reality of God's kingdom come. You help people who lack the vision to see it and who lack the faith to believe it. That's what That's what you're doing when you represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing Paul says is he wants them to be united as one community. Again, the the message really brings this into focus. It's, It's hard to understand why Paul uses if clauses as if as if there's a possibility it may not be true, because really what Paul is saying is since you know these things, since this string of things are true, then by all means, I want you to fulfill or make my joy complete by being like-minded as and, and uh, thinking the same and being on the same page. But listen how, um, again, Eugene Peterson's translation of the message, he gets some of the tongue-in-cheek of what Paul is saying, and we're not used to sarcasm in church, or at least from the pulpit, but but think of it that way. So he says it this way. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, anything, if, if his love has made any difference in your life, 
if being in a community of the Spirit means anything at all to you. If you have a heart, if you care, then do me this favor. I think that's Luke. I think he's really saying, grant me this one request. This is all I ask. Agree with each other. Love each other. Become deep-seated friends, deep-spirited friends. Well, in light of many of us and our experience in church, we might think that Paul's being a bit idealistic here. Unity is one thing, to be like-minded, particularly during an election year, or to be so connected and engaged with one another that we speak alike, that we share the same bonds of love and intimacy and affection for one another, that just doesn't sound realistic. Yes, we've probably had that happen to us once or twice in in life, and the church has been there for us when we've most needed it to be. But most of the time, other people's experience is quite the opposite. And I'm not so much describing this congregation, but our church at large. Think of people you know who have suffered emotional hurt and wounds from people within churches, not people outside. A woman once referred, told me that she had experienced the loss of two husbands, one from a divorce and the other from a death. And the way the church responded to her both times was unforgettable. Trying to navigate the awful pain of her divorce, she said, by and large, the church offered her more agony with comments of blame and shame. And rather than be present for her, everyone stayed away. Everyone avoided her. Then when her second husband died, the church rallied, came to her support and offered her comfort in her grief and all of that. And she goes, I lost both times. I was in pain both times. Why did the church respond one way the first time and another way the second? Take any controversial subject of today's world and there are people within our own congregation who are living at the heart of that reality domestic violence, adultery, homosexuality, transgender, abortion, drug addiction, mental illness, you name it. All these and more is someone's life experience. And how we as a church family respond is critical to whether those individuals feel accepted, loved, and experience church as someplace safe where they belong. And then later they come to understand what God's will is. But in the moment, in the experience, in the, in the, in the revelation, in the vulnerability, it's so very important that we're just the presence of Christ for one another. Paul's description of such a community is what we should expect of a church. 
but it's not always the reality of what we experience. And he knows the only way that this can be true is for everyone in our church, everyone, to be focused on something other than themselves. And that common focus, Paul says, is Jesus. The motivation to live differently comes directly from our relationship with Jesus, knowing how much we're loved by God is because of Jesus and the spirit that Jesus has given us is at work to move in a common direction with a common purpose. Then and only then do we have it in us to be the kind of community that Paul describes. Unfortunately, in today's culture, we don't live this way as families, as church families, um, consistently. It calls for us to hang in there with one another and grow through experiences of shared life. But too often our culture encourages us, if someone hurts you, then move on. Don't even give them the time of day. But our Christian community tells us we have to hang in there with each other. We have to learn and grow from the experiences that we share so that we know what love means and what it looks like. We're not going to get it right the first time or every time. And I owe it to this congregation for teaching me how to respond with more grace than I thought I had in the face of people who have risked vulnerability. And my inclination is to try to clarify some moral teaching. Who needs that? Well, we all do, but not at that moment. And there have been times, I have to admit, I've not gotten it right. And I've been the one to inflict the hurt. Some people have left because of that. But there are many others who have stuck around and have helped me to grow, have become mature, and allowed me to become mature with them so that the next time I've been given an opportunity, I might get it right. That's what it means to be community, is to learn to grow together in love, to be able to say to someone years later, I need to talk to you because something you said hurt me long ago, and I've not forgotten it. And then to be able to say, I am sorry, please forgive me, and allow that bond to be reunited, allow for us to to say, this is what Christ wants to have happen here. This is what it means to be in community. A friend of mine who served as an elder and lay leader at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church under the pastoral leadership of Walt Gerber, who I never knew personally, but I knew of him. He spoke of of Gerber's influence on his own life, and he said it this way, I guess what I would attribute most to Walt's role in my life is that he always directed me to Jesus. What a legacy for a pastor to be known by. From this appeal and plea, Paul will go on to recite a hymn or one of the earliest confessions about Jesus and the kind of Savior he is. Brenna will 
will bring that text to us next week. And in it, Paul's not just trying, trying to get us to copy Jesus' way of life. He's not trying to get us to be little messiahs, because we're not going to be. As much as some of us will try over and over again. Um, but rather, he's suggesting that the way Jesus saves, the very nature of who Jesus is, is what transforms us and motivates us to act differently. Such that we don't put ourselves ahead of others, but we put ourselves aside to let others go first. And I'm not talking about common decency and courtesy. I'm talking about yielding for the sake of Christ. And we don't look after and become obsessed with our own advantage but rather we're thoughtful of the words that we say and how it affects those around us and the way we present ourselves and, and advance ourselves. Do we make room for others um, to be first? I think C.S. Lewis captured this well when he described um, how he understood Christ's sense of vision for himself. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. And he means the star, the S-U-N, sun. Not only because I'm able to see it, but because of it, I see everything else. And that's exactly what Paul is doing when he directs our attention to Jesus. He's saying, not only do we see the reality of his resurrection and the new possibility of living differently, but because of him, we see everything else differently. We see one another differently. So that when someone is sharing something vulnerable about their own brokenness, we don't immediately say, well, I can fix that. Or you should know this. But instead we say, we just swallow and know our own brokenness and say, I'm here for you. I want you to experience Christ and his love for you. That is what we celebrate every time we celebrate this meal. We are reminded of Paul's words when he said, for me to live is Christ. He affirms something essential about Christian faith. We do not truly live until we die. We die to our self-serving, our self-sufficiency, our way of living that that separates and creates a barrier between us and God. And if we keep trying to control and live our own lives that way, then it's the only life we will ever know. Jesus said those who want to save their life like that will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake will save it. And when we confess our sin and our need for God, then we surrender control to him. Jesus' death on the cross then frees us from living that way and makes us fully alive to God in all that is good. So that to live again is Christ. We invite Jesus to take over and we give him our mind so that we might think his thoughts. And we give him our bodies so that he might make his home with us. We give him our wills 
so that God might fulfill his purposes in and through us. And we give him our hearts so that we might be able to express and convey God's love for this world. That is why when Jesus took bread that night with his disciples and broke it, having given thanks, he said, this is me. This is my body. Think of this bread as my body given for you. So remember me when you eat it. Make this about me and God's rescue of you through me. And similarly, with the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So when you drink this, when you taste this, remember me. Take my life into yours so that you might live in mine. The gift of God for the people of God who need them all who are hungry, all who are thirsty, come. Come and listen to what he's done. Come and celebrate your new life in him. You'll be invited to come down the center aisle, and on each side there'll be two individuals ready to serve you the bread and the cup. There are wafers for those who uh, who need it, um, in, instead of bread, and then this cup will be reserved also for dipping if, um, if you are gluten-free. There's no reason to carry the burden of, of a life lived for self. So come and find freedom in all that Christ provides. We'll sing a song in preparation. Um, not in preparation, we'll sing a song as you come, okay?